local news now. Analysis and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. we got a packed show ahead of you. Uh, wow, nice looking day here in Camelot. Some clouds, uh, a lot of the sky out there, though. Uh, we're going to touch on uh, social media and how it played a role in a TRU student's trip from India to here to Kamloops. Uh, Andrew Wilkinson, leader of the BC Liberal Party, will also be in studio for an elongated chat, taking up the back end of the show. But it is Wednesday, and that means we start with Kamloops Mayor Ken Christian to talk civic matters. Good morning, Mr. Mayor. How are you? Good morning, Shane. The uh, It's a nice city, the Kamloops jacket thing you got going there. Yeah, they dress me up and send me out. <laughs> okay, Ken, uh, you guys had a council meeting last night. It's going to be the last one for a couple of weeks you get to put your feet up take a little vacation no yeah i don't know how much feet up <laughs> time we're going to get but uh, we aren't <laughs> meeting next week because of easter and then we have the silga convention the following week so okay. there's two weeks off all right uh let's talk about some issues uh number one uh heavy industry taxation may have been sort of the, one of the bigger ones coming out of the meeting last night uh we don't have a whole lot of heavy industry left in the city and what tax rate is there seems to be higher than elsewhere uh you guys uh, voted uh, eight to one only dennis walsh opposed to kind of ease that burden a little bit. But on the flip side, uh, that means sort of a transfer to residents. Uh, what's your read of this situation? You know, uh, this is a, a chronic problem we've had here for a long time. It goes back to the days of Weyerhaeuser and, you know, the, the smell of money kind of thing and, yeah. and the notion that, uh, you know, they were quite prepared to pay, uh, you know, higher taxes to be able to operate in Kamloops uh, and, and generally make it kind of a stinky town. Uh, that was then. This is now. And uh, Dom are, uh, you know, have uh, taken over the mill and they have, uh, you know, a, a very competitive market that they operate in and they are clearly the biggest taxpayer in the city of Kamloops. They pay over $5 million per year uh, into our tax rolls and if they weren't here, uh, that would be an extra 5% on your taxes and mine. So uh, I think we want to work with heavy industry uh, to a lesser extent, Tolco, but certainly with Domtar to uh, try to move uh, that down. We are well above the provincial average average for a heavy industrial tax. So yesterday's discussion was about you know how we might do that. Uh, we had hoped to grow that sector. That's not happening anytime soon. We had hoped to move utility taxes from the Kinder Morgan project in there. That's not happening anytime soon. So what we have decided is at least cap the amount of tax that they pay. And uh, that means for the company that they're able to go to their board of directors and secure additional, uh, you know, inputs into the Kamloops mill and not be taxed because of it, right? So uh, I think some of the process optimization, some of the environmental work that they're doing uh, really uh, helps our city. And let's remember, they have about 350 uh, regular employees there and they support another 1,500 employees within the city. So I think Council uh, on Balance wanted to make sure that we could, uh, you know, uh, help them in some small way, and it's about a $200,000 tax shift. It's not yeah. anything major, and uh, I think, uh, you know, that was generally the sentiment. Uh, but we do want to investigate it a little further and see what other ideas there are available for us to lower industrial tax rates in Kamloops. Now, Domtar was in council, and every every once in a while you... Uh you smell their presence in the city. Uh, how are they doing on, on sort of mitigating some of that uh, some of that airflow from from their facility on, onto the town? Yeah, curiously, that was a separate presentation yeah. yesterday, and we had Kirsten Dangelmeyer there. And uh, you know, they've invested uh, a million uh, dollars in electrostatic precipitators to 
remove some of the particulate and another two and a half million in terms of reducing SO2 emissions uh, and they had uh, data to show that those um, levels have gone down. There has been a bit of an uptick in complaints uh, and I think uh, that's a function of the fact that we're not used to always smelling uh, the pulp mill and when we do now people uh, you know get uh, on the phones and report it and that's a good thing because I think the company is very uh, earnest in their desire to uh, be a good corporate citizen and and uh, to work alongside Camelops residents. Now there's been a reduction in, in heavy industry users in the city. Uh, this is a, a growing community. Uh, there's a shift going on here. Um, for the future, you talk about, you know, Trans Mountains on pause. Uh, you haven't been able to learn any other heavy industry in the city. Where's the city going? I mean, if you're going to target industries to come and contribute and pay taxes and set up shop here, what are those industries? Well, you know, I, I think it's largely in the light industrial uh, tax bracket, and those brackets are established by uh, the BC Assessment Authority. So, uh, you know, the the uh, shift of our, our economy from being largely a resource-based economy to more a knowledge-based economy, uh, I think, is is happening and uh, as we can grow uh, both residential tax classes and light industry and business tax classes uh, that will help us uh, raise the 110 million dollars a year we need out of taxation to keep this city running. Uh, some other issues uh, out of council last night. Uh, David Eby wrote uh, you a letter saying uh, yes to your request to tour the downtown BCLC headquarters. I'm not sure when you're going to do that, but what's the purpose of that, Ken? Yeah, we we had uh, written to Minister Eby, uh, you know, to express concern that that uh, project for the rebuild uh, was uh, on pause, and uh, we wanted some assurance that the organic growth of BCLC was going to be accommodated here in Camels. We didn't want to see any migration of jobs out of the city and he wrote us back uh, assuring us that Kamloops was, is and will be the headquarters for BCLC and uh, they are happy to uh, you know, be here and we're happy to have them. Uh, I think uh, what's happening though is that that building, uh, they're outgrowing it and so uh, we're wanting to go in and make sure that you know the, the space is the space and then we want to encourage them to lease additional spaces downtown if they're not going to do the rebuild. Yeah. Uh, let's see some, uh, you know, downtown commercial space being leased to BCLC and, you know, in close proximity to their headquarters, that should work. Uh, another issue that uh, bubbled up since you and I last talked uh, was this proposal to license or put some kind of licensing fee on street performers, uh, which seems to have gone over like a lead balloon among downtown stakeholders. So uh, to you, is this something you support or, or do we need to need to rethink here? Yeah, well, uh, first of all, it was nothing that came before council. Yeah. You know, we have new committees and those committees are open to the public and we had a reporter at one of the committees and, and they were reporting on what was essentially a, a plan that was floated by uh, you know our uh, staff in terms of uh, street performance. But let's be clear about a few things. We're not interested in taxing and grabbing money from street performers. That is not what this is about. Uh, we in fact support uh, busking and we are proud to host the second annual Buskers Festival 
people here in Kamloops. And we look at busking as a way for emerging artists to have a venue to ply their trade and get better. Uh, and so that is really the motivation behind what they were proposing. And uh, there is a very fine line between busking and panhandling. And, yeah. you know, people that are, uh, you know, out in front of your business in July singing jingle bells at, you know, a, a loud voice really aren't necessarily street, street performers. So I think what the staff was trying to do was have a way to adjudicate legitimate buskers uh, and doing that through the Arts Council and uh, then uh, making sure that panhandling was going to uh, comply with the existing regulations about panhandling. And it's all about making Kamloops streets more interesting yeah. and also making them safer so that people don't feel threatened when they're walking downtown. Now, the Kamloops Central Business Improvement Association said this whole thing came as a blindside. They never heard about it until uh, it hit local media. Uh, and their take to me was, well, this is ridiculous. I mean, what are you going to tell people who pick up a guitar and are doing a nice little jingle downtown? Are you going to tell them to move along because it's panhandling? Um, I mean, like you said, it's a fine line. And I just wonder how you, through a bylaw or a proposed whatever, how you mandate where that line is. It seems like a tricky route to walk. Yeah, and, and that's some of the detail that will obviously be worked out before they bring this to council, if they bring it to council. So, you know, uh, if uh, the KCBIA aren't interested in having our streets safer, well, then that's a discussion that we have to have. But certainly that's the motivation, uh, you know, behind uh, what was proposed and, uh, you know, making sure that uh, our bylaw people can uh, keep panhandlers moving along and keep uh, people from obstructing our sidewalks, being around kiosks and ATMs and intimidating people yeah. versus those people who are legitimate artists who we welcome in our city. Yeah, and panhandling, uh, make no mistake about it, is a big issue downtown. Uh, we're almost out of time. I just want to jam this in here. Uh, work along West Victoria Street uh, has begun. Uh, <laughs> uh, we've learned people don't know how to zipper merge and that there's a, a sense of frustration. I'm just curious. I, I, before we went to air, I kind of bounced some of the topics off you, and uh, you had a visceral reaction when I put that one on. So I assume you're getting a bit of an earful on this thing. or Yeah, th this is day three, and, uh, you know, uh, we have a long way to go. And, yeah. and uh you know, I've been talking about this project for the last six months. Nobody believed me until Monday, and now they're all of a sudden horrified that we're actually digging up West Victoria Street. We are. We're spending $13 million. We're doing important infrastructure work that is essential, and uh, we are going to disrupt traffic movement in this city, and we're going to disrupt parking. So there's no way around that, but it's something that has to happen. Uh, and uh, we didn't just, you know, go out Sunday night with a bunch of cones and decide where we might drop them. We have been studying this for months yeah. and we have looked at traffic movements and we uh, you know, will change traffic patterns during the course of the project but right now uh, people need to find alternative routes take alternative kinds of transportation or just get out there and walk. One of the issues out of that that I noticed was uh, the Lansdowne Parkade uh, now it's getting jammed up right down Lansdowne. And I, I noticed a couple of tweets over the last few days of people who obviously park there, go to their job place uh, for the day, and they're looking to get home. And the, <laughs> the lineup to get out of the parkade has become 
excruciating to say the least but I, I don't know if there's anything you can do about that but it's just sort of one side effect of this whole thing yeah there are unintended consequences we've had uh, a lot of people from heritage house because you know we've moved some of the parking that's no longer available uh, down into the heritage house area uh, we've had people uh, very concerned about the uh, you know two-way on Seymour and and we've altered truck routes uh, there is nobody that's not going to be affected by <laughs> this and Trust me, we don't get any pleasure in messing up people's lives, but this is work that we have to do, and our professional engineers uh, and our transportation uh, engineers have been uh, studying this, and we have what we believe to be the least intrusive uh, way of doing this construction that's going to be the most efficient in terms of us being able to get this job done sooner rather than later. I bet this situation makes you reflect fondly on putting disc golf on Mac Island. <laughs> The, the hazards of being mayor. Uh, Mr. Mayor, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Shane. <laughs> All right. That's Kamloops Mayor Ken Christian. We'll take a quick break. On the other side, we're going to talk to a TRU student, touch on how social media was part of his journey from India here to Kamloops. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Digging deeper into the day's top stories. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Real pleasure to welcome into the studio this morning. Uh, digital marketer and uh, are you TRU student? or yeah, yeah. There we go. Uh, Sajish Soman. Uh, Sajish, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Shane. Okay, so uh, you uh, once hailed from Mumbai. Yep. And you find yourself suddenly here in Kamloops yep. uh, and going to Thompson Rivers University. Yeah. As I understand it, um, that Thompson Rivers University is doing something special on the social media front. Yeah. Yeah. And you kind of uh, stumbled on this yeah. and uh, was part of your junior a journey from, yeah. from from your home to here. Yeah. Uh, so so tell me a bit about that. What what happened and, okay. and how did social media play a role? So now? this goes back uh, way back in 2014 when uh, when I I started off my own startup kind of a thing that had to do with digital marketing and yeah. that's when I came across Julio Viskovich. So he was an excellent guy. So he coined this term called uh, social selling. So that's something because everything is going online right now and there's a lot of digital marketing activities happening. So I happened to come across his video when he was working with Hootsuite. And that's when I started following him. And then after pretty much doing a couple of years in my startup, I, I decided I should be doing more in marketing. And I started to learn more about it. And I wanted to go abroad and learn more about things as well. So that's when I realized that he was uh, working here as a as an instructor in Thompson Rivers University. And yeah. then then when the uh, you know recruiters for the university came to Mumbai, where my hometown is, so I told them that I just want to go to TRU for sure. I, there's no other place that I want to go to because there's, there's someone over there whom I really look forward to, whom I'm learned from a lot so that's that's pretty much my journey it's been it's been pretty awesome here i've been here since one year now and it's it's completely completely awesome for me what is it about uh what is it about the people and this particular program that stands out internationally mm -hmm. and makes a guy like you say hey um, you know, I'm not going to get the experience I want any other place mm -hmm. than here. What what is about what is it about this particular program and how they recruit that that says to you, okay. that's my thing. Okay, so there are two things. Firstly, like I said, uh, Julio was here and given his experience because he's traveled the world and he's done a lot of digital marketing things across the world. And when it comes to TRU, because Canada itself is a very diverse country, there are so many people coming across from different parts of the world. Even instructors, they they bring a, a lot of uh, substance to their materials as well. Uh, so. TRU 
DRU has been uh, the marketing program that I went through before I could come here. It was very comprehensive and it was it had a lot of cutting edge uh, subjects. For example, digital marketing, advertising, integrated marketing communications. All these things are going to be the future of uh, the marketing activities going ahead in future. So that's pretty much because I was because then I did not have another reason to look back and not consider why I shouldn't be coming here. So that's that's pretty much it. Tell me a little bit about Mike Henry. Apparently, he's doing some special oh, things. Yeah, yeah, he's 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 an awesome guy. Just that it's it's very difficult to find him on campus because he's always traveling and he's he's doing a lot of good things for the university as well so one thing is one thing that i did was once i reached over here i went out and uh, spoke to him and i told him that you know julia's here and uh, he was really amazed to hear my story as well because it's like all the way from mumbai coming down to kamloops in tru that's for him it was like an achievement as well because because given my experience and what i've done in marketing and i followed this particular instructor to learn from him that's something that adds a lot of value to the university as well and he's like he was asking me what are your plans like going ahead and and uh, going ahead because uh, I think uh, me TRU and Mike Henry we all have us have a lot of uh, things to go ahead and do for the entire university in future as well so tell me you mentioned that digital marketing is the future mm -hmm. uh, maybe a lot of people listening might not know exactly what, what do you mean when you say that what is it and how will it play a role in the future okay so one of the many reasons is because uh, unlike before a lot of us, especially the Millennials and teenagers are spending a lot of their time online everything <laughs> is on social media yeah. even even the moment I, I go out from here I'm going and checking my snapchat my Facebook and all of the stories out over there so everything happening online on social media is is part of digital marketing for, and for any company or any brand to come up and bring up something that's very substantial they have to have that digital marketing presence which is why I feel uh, especially social media because that's where Julio himself uh, specializes a lot right. and that's one one area that I consider myself to be very important when it comes to digital marketing as well because that is going to the future because that's where everyone is that's where your audience is for any company or any brand that's where your audience is so the more you focus on digital marketing strategies the better it will be for the brand so what does a guy like you when you get out of the program where, mm -hmm. what do you do with it where, where do you go uh, so uh, there are a couple of options actually so uh, since I've already had my startup my business back in Mumbai which I still have it's like a digital marketing firm so that's one thing because uh, receiving this experience uh, on a global global outset it, uh, it really helps me a lot because it gives me a complete picture about how are things happening on a global front and not just in a particular country so I plan to come up with something because I have had like four years of experience in marketing and given another two years of just studying marketing and digital marketing as well there are a few things that I want to do um, I have some plans uh, with respect to digital marketing something like a startup or something but I have to collaborate with the right people and get in touch because I think there's a lot lot uh, this country has to offer there's a lot of potential there are many uh, many good skilled uh, students and uh, people coming in as well so getting in touch with them and creating something substantial for the community should be very useful I feel Mumbai I haven't been I'd love to go uh, but Mumbai as I understand is a yeah. big yeah, it's a complex big, uh, jam packed yeah, city yeah. What, just and we're out of time but I just want to get a sense what was it like for, I mean you you, you go on social media, you go, okay, I'm going there. I, I can get something out of that. Uh -huh. uh, you get off the plane and you arrive in Kamloops from a big city like Mumbai. Yeah. What was that like? It, initially, you? it was difficult because because I've lived like a very fast-paced life and Mumbai is like, it has a lot of people, a lot of people. You yeah. just don't have time to wait and chat with someone because you'll just rush away with the crowd. So for me, initially, it was difficult to get that transition in. But then once once you set your own pace and get things going, it's pretty good. I think I think Kamloops is growing and there's a lot of future for things going in here as well. It's pretty awesome here. All right, Sajish. Thank you so much for taking some time this Thank morning. Thank you so much. And uh, what a journey. Uh, Saji Soman, a digital marketer and uh, taking some uh, courses at TRU in his journey in uh, social media played a role from India here to Kamloops. Uh, quick break at the bottom of the hour. On the other side, BC Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson joins us.
Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Pleasure to welcome in the studio this morning uh, the leader of the BC Liberal Party, Andrew Wilkinson, and of course the uh, two Kamloops MLAs, Todd Stone and Peter Millibar. How are you guys doing? Great to be here. Excellent. Are you guys just going to say nothing? Is good, it? good to see you this morning, Shane. <laughs> wow. It's going to be a tough interview. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Andrew, uh, first and foremost, uh, what brings you to town? What brings you to our first city? Well, it's important to get around to all of BC, and having grown up in Calumps, it's a place that you, I can't take for granted, even though I know the place like the back of my hand. It's very important to get the local feel of what's going on. Things like the land title office changes here, yeah. and things like the seeing the result of the hospital expansion and the TRU expansion that were such big investments made by the BC Liberals. And of course, getting back in touch with Peter and Todd, who are just stellar as MLAs. Uh, and a serious topic, and you and I were just chatting briefly off air about this. I mean, we've had a horrific situation play out in Salmon Arm. Uh, apparently, I mean, we don't know specifics of the details in Salmon Arm and Penticton. A lot of this stuff's going to come out. But uh, safe to say we've had two, you know, small uh, rural communities who've been visited with gun violence and headlines that I think we would normally associate uh, with our cousins south of the border. Uh, I don't. I don't want you to speak to the specifics of these two places because we, again, we don't know much. But uh, the overarching concern here is we have five people dead from gun violence in two small BC towns, um, and then we have gun violence, you know, plaguing uh, communities from Kamloops to the coast <coughs> um, when it concerns gang violence. We, I don't think these two situations are that. But at the end of the day, Andrew, I mean, um, do we need to start talking about you know crackdowns on gun control or? This is such a big and complicated issue that. Uh, I think we all have that feeling that when uh, these extremely violent acts make it into the news, like the New Zealand horror show, that this perhaps triggers things in people who otherwise wouldn't be so inclined. And, you know, Canada, according to the material that's come out in the recent past, has one of the highest rates of gun ownership in the world. But like Switzerland, it's a very low rate of gun violence. And that's a testament to our society and the kind of social links we all have with each other. There are a lot of guns out there. I grew up in a family with four rifles, but it never seemed to cross anybody's mind to do anything inappropriate yeah. with them. So it's very difficult to come up with a magic solution to these things. I think it's obviously, as you're saying, something you keep a very close eye on because we all worry that there might be individuals out there in a society who might do things that are totally wrong uh, because they've seen something on TV from far away. Do we need to tie sort of uh, the mental health issue into gun ownership? I know that that was, uh, until it was repealed by uh, current U.S. President Donald Trump, was something that the states did, saying if you've got some mental health issues, then, then perhaps gun ownership's not for you. I don't know how you do that, but is that an aspect of the problem we need to turn our attention to or no? From what I know, that's actually a very crude kind of screen because a lot of these mental health issues don't manifest until the first violent outburst. Mm. And so you think, well, uh, are you actually going to get a lot of false positives, false negatives when you're sorting out the screen and you actually spend a whole lot of time accomplishing nothing? So you got to approach those things very 
very carefully and very thoughtfully because if you spend a whole bunch of time and money on something you think is going to prevent violence and doesn't make any difference, you've actually missed the point completely. Uh, yesterday we had some pretty major news uh, from BC's North Dawson Creek, uh, the Premier visiting that part of the world for the first time in a long time, uh, responding to an uproar over the caribou consultations, uh, obviously uh, seeing that this situation needed to be addressed. Uh, he's reacted to it, he's uh, lengthened the consultation time by a month, uh, he's recruited uh, someone you guys know well in Blair Lextrum, a former Liberal Cabinet Minister, currently a Councillor at Dawson Creek. Uh, your your reaction to, to what the Premier did, is, is it enough, Andrew? Is it lack Cluster, what's your reaction? Well, I think most of us have caught up with the news now that the mountain caribou situation <laughs> needs to be addressed, and the NDP went up to the peace country, uh, Fort St. John Dawson Creek, apparently cut a deal uh, behind closed doors with some of the local First Nations, and then they decided they would have a one-month consultation period where they would hit the entire province of British Columbia in about eight meetings. They weren't comfortable doing it themselves, so they had the Fraser Basin Council do these meetings for them. Uh, for those of you who don't pay attention, Fort St. John's an awful long way from the Fraser Basin. So this turned into a province-wide uproar with meetings starting in Chetwin. 300 people showed up, Prince George about 500. The one last night, I think it was, in Revelstoke was 725 people. That's oh. one out of every seven people in the whole town. Mm. If you did that in Vancouver proportionally, that's a meeting of 90,000 people who showed up to express their uh, complete dissatisfaction and, and the fact they're offended by this phony consultation. So what do they do to, to backfill this to try and cover it up? They go back where they started, they fly the premium up to Dawson Creek, where he never even went during the last election, and they get somebody to take on the task of trying to backfill this completely failed consultation. So they clearly have egg all over their faces in the NDP cabinet room. Room. They're trying to fix this after the fact. They've backed themselves into a corner because they've apparently can, uh, made these secret deals with some First Nations, and then they're going to go out and talk to the people in the community and the people whose lives depend upon access to the backcountry. So they've really made a mess of this, and perhaps they'll have Blair Lextrum coming to Revelstoke next. <laughs> uh, in, uh, in announcing that he's uh, brought Blair Lextrum on as a special liaison, uh, the Premier made an interesting acknowledgement uh, that I thought was worth some discussion in saying, listen, uh, in areas of the province where we don't have an NDP MLA, which is a, a pretty big chunk of the province outside of Metro Vancouver, we don't have people on the ground to get a sense of, of the pressure and, and what the sort of local sentiment is. So, hence uh, Lextrum coming on board to be a conduit uh, for the community. But um, from your perspective, considering the sheer size of the province without NDP representation, uh, what, what, was your, what was your take on that comment? Well, that's uh, a bit convenient, I would say. You know, our party has one MLA in Vancouver Island. I've lived and worked in Campbell River. We're over there all the time. We have people on the ground that we know and trust and like. They're all the municipal councillors we're in touch with. Plus, there's the entire provincial civil service. So John Horgan has about 30,000 people he could call upon to find out what's going on in the peace country. It's a bit of a disappointment to say that he shows up and says, gee, we didn't know what was going on here because we don't have anybody elected in the peace country. Well, come on. There are people at the oil and gas commission is based in Fort St. John. The entire um, provincial government uh, framework around oil and gas is in Fort St. John. Those people talk to Victoria every day. So I think what happened here is they thought they would just blow this past the people from Cranbrook through Revelstoke all the way up through the Caribou and into the peace country. They thought it would just slide past them and they'd just get the deal they wanted. Lo and behold, the locals said, don't mess with me. 
don't tell me how to live and John Horgan's having to do a whole lot of backtracking now. Turning our attention to Alberta and the election win by Jason Kenney and the United Conservative Party, he's uh, had some rather tough talk. He's going to turn off the taps in day one and show us uh, here in BC and our NDP government what's what. Um, your take on, on, I don't know, I mean, we have to find out if it's bluster or not or what the outcome is, but, uh, I mean, you might be Premier one day. Uh, how would you deal with something like that? You know, here in Kamloops, we have... The railway is going through here. We have the Trans-Canada Highway. This is a major transportation hub for all of Canada. And on that basis, he can expand that thinking and say, look, Canada's one country. Provinces working together lead to way better results for all of us than provinces kicking each other in the shins. And unfortunately, John Horgan has created the situation by blocking Alberta's exports, saying that they'd rather pick a fight than lead to good results for both provinces. I spent a lot of time in Alberta. I went to high school in Lethbridge. Uh, glad to be back in BC, I must say. But uh, these two provinces are joined at the hip. There's so much traffic of people and goods and services back and forth between the two that this idea we're going to erect barriers between the two provinces is really a bad one. And it's up to John Horgan, in my estimation, to get on a plane into Edmonton the day after Jason Kenney is elected and to solve these problems rather than create fights and lead to deterioration of everybody's lives. One of the issues at play, obviously, is uh, partisan politics and polarization in our society. I don't know if you read it or not, but our Lieutenant Governor, Janet Austin, wrote an interesting Vancouver Sun article calling out... I saw out, it today. Yeah, a very, very good read, I thought. Um, you know me, I love politics. It's one of the reasons I talk to you so much. But one of the things that I'm constantly depressed about is the level of public discourse. Uh, so considering sort of the ugly campaign in Alberta, the war between our province and theirs, and all the stuff that's going on in our world... Um, you as party leader and a, and a major political figure in this prom province and, and potentially heading into an election and, and God only knows when that happens, but fairly soonish. Um, what do you think your responsibility is to to raise that bar? I mean, you, you've got to fight to win, but at the same time, I just, it's so depressing out there, the level of public discourse. Well, there are two sides to that coin, you know. One is getting attention, which is harder in this world because I think we all know that the conventional media world has shrunk a bit and there's much more on social media where people say rash things to get attention. The counterpoint to that is we've got a very widely diverse caucus of 42 MLAs who represent a huge political spectrum. And what we've been very successful in doing is finding the way that works. You know, in homelessness, we're saying, look, these are two problems that overlap. People without a home, homelessness in its purest form, and addictions. You can't treat one without the other. You've got to provide the full scale of services. That's the kind of sensible middle ground that we want to pursue, and we'll have to speak loud and clear about that because we expect the NDP to be basically attacking me and my personality and the car that I drive, for that matter, which is 13 years old. That's where their, convention, their uh, campaign is probably going to go. And that's unfortunate. Is it an $8,000 insurance VW Beetle by chance? Or? No, it's a ancient Acura, <laughs> and the insurance is about 2000 bucks and rising fast. Okay, hold that thought, Andrew. Uh, we'll be right back here on The Woodford Show. Uh, more with the leader of the BC Liberals, Andrew Wilkinson, right after this. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Shane Woodford on RadioNL.com. 
Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. It is a pleasure to be chatting with the leader of the B.C. Liberals, Andrew Wilkinson, in studio this morning. On the issue of uh, of union versus non-union pay, which is one that you guys have really taken to the government in the last few days, and, and one the government seems to be backpedaling on, um, I know Les Lane called him today saying, you know, there's been upwards of 20, 30 questions that they have dodged and danced and weaved and uh, used the 16 years and, and, and that kind of thing, but without a coherent answer. I know that the Premier recently revealed he's actually met with this issue uh, from sort of a higher profile cabinet ministers, your Carol James, your Mike Farnworth, some people like that. Um, you know, the, the sparring in the legislature aside, uh, do you think this is an issue the government is, is finally going to move on in this sort of wage disparity that they have some responsibility for now or no? Yeah, just to paint the picture for your listeners, the home care field has many thousands of people working in it. 17,000 of them are non-union people who work for contractors who do this work for uh, people with disabilities like my sister who actually lives in Alberta and for seniors who have home care services. Some of them are unionized and the unionized people have been guaranteed a significant lift in pay and the non-union people have been told that's tough. So we raised this at length in the legislature and the way I put it to the Minister of Social Services who's from East Van and came from a very humble background is, is he prepared to walk down East Hastings Street in Vancouver and meet one of these people and look them in the eye and say, you're not as good as that person across the street who's in the union? Is he prepared to do that? Because his whole purpose of going into elected life was to solve those kinds of problems for the underrepresented folks. And here they are screwing these people. They're basically treating them as second-class citizens, and these are the people that they seek to represent as their highest priority. So this is a shameful episode for the NDP. They are deeply bothered by this because for a bunch of them, they think this is the reason they went into to public life, is to fix these problems, and now they're creating one for 17,000 underpaid women who provide these services. It is appalling what they've done. Do you think they're going to alter course as they did with the caribou recently or no? I think they're going to have to find a way out while also appeasing their union boss buddies. And that's a big problem for them because the whole premise of this was to drive people into unions, just like they did with their phony community benefits agreement, which is usually really a union boss's benefits agreement where you want to build the Patello Bridge, you want to build part of the Kicking Horse Highway, you're going to have to join one of their 19 favorite unions that gave them $2.5 million in the last election. This stinks. And they know it stinks. Uh, on gas prices at the pump, uh, not as high here in Kamloops as you're paying in uh, in Vancouver. Uh-huh. Oh, I saw a bargain on the way <laughs> through North Van- Kamloops today at dollar thirty-eight. The pumps near my house are dollar sixty-nine point nine. I see you guys are banging the drum that uh, they should lower the provincial taxes. Honestly, is that really a solution? I don't well, think it is. What we've said is that when the prices surge like they have, they should seriously look at having a cap on the prices so that people don't face these huge bursts in costs. And that's a realistic uh, proposition. John Horgan's just silent. He has this confused, bizarre theory that this is a conspiracy of oil companies. Well, that's classic NDP buck passing. He's got the chance with a stroke of a pen to change our gasoline taxation. He doesn't want to do it. You cap it? Cap it at what? Well, you got to figure out what the right cap is to, you know, if the price is now $1.69 near my house, not many people look forward to filling up their tank for $120. And so you've got to figure out what the right cap would be and say, look, we're going to we're going to put some kind of ceiling on the, the price of gasoline by pushing back on provincial taxes when it takes a big surge. It, if you drop provincial taxes, I think you make a pretty fair argument oil companies would turn around and just raise the price gradually or, or immediately anyway, and that's more money in their pockets at the end of the day. Obviously, you'd have to do this in, in concert with a 
push from the Federal Competition Bureau, whose job is it in, is to investigate price fixing. It's interesting. I was in uh, Surrey last Friday night when the price in Vancouver was a dollar sixty-eight point nine, and there was gas available there for a dollar thirty-six. And I think what the petroleum majors are doing, and they're not stupid, is that they're keeping the impression there that there's the odd price war going on. And that hmm. insulates them from being accused of price fixing. There's definitely some industry gouging here, though. We don't know. I mean, this, there's a very interesting uh, post by this guy who calls himself a chemist in Langley. I don't know if you saw it. Blair King. Yeah. Well written, and it uh, points out that we're in a an unusual petroleum market here up and down the West Coast. Uh, most people aren't aware of it. There used to be a, an oil refinery here in Canada run by Chevron that closed a long time ago. There's a little tiny one in Prince George, and there's a mid-sized one in Vancouver. Most of our fuel that we burn in all our 3.5 million motor vehicles comes either through the Trans Mountain Pipeline that John Horgan's trying to block the expansion of, or from refineries in Washington State, which use a lot of Alberta crude as well as Alaska crude, which comes down our coast in tankers. So there's a great cartoon the other day of John Horgan in the first panel saying, I'm in court trying to stop Alberta sending us their oil. And then the next panel says, I'm in court forcing Alberta to send us their oil. And that's where they find themselves. They've, they've painted themselves into a corner on this file. Trans Mountain is a federally approved project with the right provincial conditions, and the NDP are doing everything they can to play politics with it while watching gas prices go through the roof. And they actually have a sworn affidavit from the B.C. government that they used in a Calgary courtroom in January yeah. saying that the Trans Mountain Pipeline is by far the cheapest and most efficient way to deliver fuel to British Columbia. And if it's impeded, as they said in their sworn evidence, there will be economic ruin in British Columbia and what they called civil unrest. And that probably means fights at the gas pumps. <laughs> uh, last question, and just because you're a Vancouver MLA and I'm curious about the topic, uh, uh, as you know, marijuana is now legal, uh, and yet uh, the organizers of the annual 420 protest are, are trying to stick to their um, game plan, as they have in years past, of throwing uh, what is an illegal protest event uh, with Cypress Hills, the headliner. Uh, they don't seem to give a fig for uh, city bylaws, the health impacts, the marijuana smoke, all that kind of stuff. So uh, as a Vancouver MLA, a simple question to you, uh, considering the now legal climate with cannabis, is it time for these organizations or these organizers to grow up and play by the same rules as everybody else? Well, before I came here today, I listened to a radio program in Vancouver where Dana Larson, who's the main organizer behind this thing, dodged and weaved his way through the issues. They have no liability insurance. They have no permit. They have all kinds of problems brewing, and they just laugh and walk away. This is basically a rock concert, and they're renting out trade booths for $500 to $1,000 a pop, and they're running around pretending it's a protest. Give me a break. This is a commercial venture that's evading responsibility. And as the radio uh, uh, commentator said, so if there's a problem with this thing, you know, God forbid a stage collapse, or if somebody gets beaten up, or something falls on them, what happens? And Dana Larson's answer was, I guess that's kind of tough, isn't it? I guess they'd have to sue the city or somebody. <laughs> Unbelievable. So it's sad because, you know, we got to be in a society where people have the same kind of sense of purpose. I remember something during a hockey riot in Montreal. 
they interviewed a cop with a very thick French accent and said, well, why don't you stop this? And he said, you know, the police, they can only stop it when it's 10% or less of the people. Everybody does it, it's a big problem. <laughs> and, you know, you look around a place like Calum, it's a very orderly place. Most people want to be law-abiding and sensible, and you can police a very small percentage of people. But if somebody goofy wants to go and whip up a bunch of people to do something that's clearly illegal and cause a whole bunch of costs to me as a Vancouver taxpayer, that's not the Canadian way. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank Good you. to see you. Thank you. And that was the leader, the official opposition, Andrew Wilkinson, flanked by his two Kamloops BC Liberal MLAs and Todd Stone and Peter Millibar. And that brings to an end this edition of the Woodford Show. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you again on the same time tomorrow. 106.7 Logan Lake, 98.1 Blue River, 97.5 Avola. From CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM. Local news now.